0: Considering with you for several months now the subject of God centered prayer, suggesting to you that many times when we say we're praying, we're really talking to ourselves or talking to someone else in the room, not necessarily talking to God. And I've asked what it means to really study what the Scripture says about prayer that is directed to God and empowered by God. We go to the fourth chapter. Of Hebrews today, and it's really just the last verse that I'm interested in, but a quick sketch of how that verse fits. Hebrews has begun by comparing Christ to everything else imaginable, to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, and showing how he is greater than each and every one of those things. The fourth chapter raises a subject particularly relating to Joshua in the Old Testament because he was the leader who took over from Moses and was supposed to lead the people into Canaan, the promised land, where they would find the rest that God had promised, not just the ability to sit down and take a nap or get a good night's sleep, but rather what was called a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 9 of chapter 4 calls it that. Joshua didn't bring that about. The people were disobedient and unruly and they didn't rest even when they came into Canaan, not spiritually anyway. Well, then the author, and we don't know the author of this wonderful book, but we know it was someone who understood the apostolic gospel very well. The author at verse 14, where I'm going to start reading, said there is someone like Joshua who will lead us all the way to the throne of God and lead us to the place that we desire to be. Listen as I read these last few verses, and it's verse 16 that we're going to just concentrate on. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is God's own word. I know as I've studied the life and presidency of Abraham Lincoln some, there's a fact that never ceases to amaze me at how things were done very differently in that day than they are today. Lincoln as our 16th president, and I guess most of the presidents before him, had to spend large portions of every day simply interviewing people who came to the White House and lined up and wanted to talk to the president. They wanted to be appointed a postmaster of Smithville, Ohio, or they wanted some kind of a favor, or some appointment to be made for them or for a relative. In those days, you literally could walk in off the street, enter the White House, get in line, and you were, if you waited long enough, that is, you were allowed to come in and see the president. And he spent hours and hours on this. It wore him out. Imagine, your, your country's at war within itself. You're trying to run a civil war, and somebody wants to, to settle a dispute with your brother-in-law or something like that. That's what he had to do. Amazing, that access that people had compared to the security of the White House today. Well, exactly opposite to this, we know that in the ancient world, many powerful monarchs or dictators or conquerors made themselves almost unapproachable to the people over whom they ruled. In fact, there were extreme cases where even a family member or your prime minister or the leader of your treasury or something like that had to make an appointment to come and see the royal personage. And these rulers found a principle, which is a little bit understandable, that the more sort of distance that they created between themselves and the masses, the more it would build up the mystique of their power. There's a real example of that in the Bible, as many of you would already have guessed, In the book of Esther, when Esther, who was a Hebrew, was one of the wives of King Ahasuerus of the Medo-Persians, a great people that ruled for a time in that area of the world, Esther, as queen, literally had to risk her life by approaching her husband without an advance invitation for a conference with him on behalf of the Jewish people. Esther came trembling but courageous as she brought a petition for Ahasuerus to consider, and she was happily accepted, but she didn't know that for sure until the king signaled for her to come forward. Well, that latter example is certainly not the manner in which a biblical believer is asked to approach the high God, king of all the universe. He does not put on false airs of greatness to intimidate us or impress us, nor does he hide himself from us or put battalions of angels in the way that would forbid us from coming to his holy presence. In fact, the God and Father, who is creator of all things and ruler of all things, according to the Scripture, through our Lord Jesus Christ, throws open the gates of his heavenly dwelling and bids his people who come in the name of Christ to come even into his innermost court where he desires to know us and commune with us. Hebrews 4 picks up this theme, as I've already mentioned a little bit, an Old Testament theme. Joshua was the leader. Everybody thought, Joshua will take us in finally. Moses didn't get all the way there. The people disobeyed so severely during Moses' time that the Lord made them wander for 40 years and they were exhausted and most of that generation that left Egypt never made it to Canaan. It was their children that entered Canaan. But there they still didn't really get the rest that seemed promised because of their disobedience and their, their divisions and their anxieties and their complaints against God. So verses 14 to 16 of this chapter speak about a new Joshua, a New Testament Joshua, who is Jesus, Yeshua, and Hebrews promises that he has done all the things necessary to conduct his true people of faith into that rest, that Sabbath rest of belonging to God and being at peace with God and being safe within the government of God because he is called here the unique high priest who has passed through the heavens themselves, having come to earth, Son of God coming to earth, becoming a man, experiencing everything that a man experiences, tempted even as we are. That sentence deserves a whole sermon, and in fact I've given it one more than once before, but I'm not even going to deal with that. Jesus tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's an astonishing sentence as it describes the uniqueness of Christ. He opened the way. And we find this verse 16 now as one of the epic verses about believers' prayer. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want to say to you first of all, This text tells us this Christian prayer brings us before the highest king on the greatest throne. Biblical, God centered prayer enters the loftiest royal chamber of the most exalted monarch that could possibly exist, so much so that he often is called in the Bible God Most High. That's a pretty comprehensive name. It's saying there isn't anybody higher. You can't think of any, any higher court of appeal. If you're not happy with God's verdict on something, you can't say, I'll take it to a higher court. There is no such. God most high is the creator and ruler of all things that exist. Isaiah 57, 15 calls God the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, altogether distinct, and he dwells in a high And holy place. Many of you will remember the event that happened to Isaiah, the author of that great prophecy. Isaiah 6 tells a little bit of autobiography. Isaiah was a courtier who had some role of service in the court of King Uzziah, one of the righteous kings of God's people in that time, and his reign was a a good time a time when people were drawn to the Lord and pointed to the Lord, but he had died. And Isaiah tells in chapter 6 of his prophecy, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He had a vision. He went into the temple, and here was a man. Now, you've got to think of somebody who's had a, a high government role, highly respected, maybe, I don't know. Think of the... The head of the CIA or the head of the treasury or some cabinet officer. I don't know exactly what Isaiah's role was, but he had been involved with the government of King Uzziah. So he was mourning his king, and he was wondering what comes next. And he went into the temple, and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Here's a man who was no dreamer, He was not a peasant. He was an educated man, a man of government service who had served the high king himself, and he says, I saw the highest king of all. He was not a naive man. He was not a man probably easily awed by powerful personages, but what did he do when he says, I saw the train of the Lord fill the temple? He fell on his face. And he said, woe is me, I'm undone, for my eyes have seen the king in his glory. No question at all that Isaiah saw the true God somehow revealed in a vision to him. And he could only bow down and and not speak for a while. Now, we're right if we teach new Christians that prayer is not complicated It's right to teach new Christians that they don't need special language. They don't have to say thee and thou and shouldest and wouldest, and it's okay to say that if that's the way you speak, but most people don't speak that way anymore. You don't need special language for God. You don't need high theological terms. You can talk to him. But at the same time that we tell people this, we must never imply that you're talking to your equal. My wife and I, I hope, are equals, We talk to each other. Once in a while, we're unhappy with each other. Guess what? The preacher and his wife sometimes have a little edge in their voices with each other. Is that okay for me to admit that? It doesn't originate with her, of course. It all starts with me. Just, just to keep the record straight. But we talk as two human beings who are equals, who have equal opinions that I think we equally respect. When I talk to God, I'm not talking to my wife. I'm not talking to my equal. And yes, I can just talk, but I must have something there within me, that indefinable something called reverence. Isn't reverence a hard thing to capture and define? Some of you go to other places for church services and you come back to me and you say, Pastor, there was just no reverence there. Well, I don't know how you codify that. and Maybe you don't either. But you know, it, you know what reverence is when you experience it and you know what it's not when you experience that. A sense of people who, in a sense, put their hand over their mouth and say, I'm approaching God Most High, who can really be called an alien being, not alien in the sense of strange space monsters, but in the sense of not of us, not like us. Our God is holy. We read that definition of what is God, amazing sentence that they put in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing. And we can't pile on enough words to say what he is. He's so different from anything that we are. He is absolutely the sovereign ruler. This is who we pray to, folks. Yes, in our common language, but not our equal. It seems like I've quoted Martin Luther a fair amount in the last week's As we've been thinking about that 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I've been reading things about Luther and stumbling on different quotes that I wanted to give you, and I came across this one without even looking for it. Luther once said, With what tongue shall I speak to him? I who tremble even before an earthly prince, shall I lift my eyes to the divine majesty and speak rudely? Shall I, born in dust and ashes and so full of sin, come to God and blithely announce, I want this, I want that? Luther said, imagine it. Me, a heap of dust, giving orders to God most high. So first of all, I would just have you know that Christian prayer brings us before the highest king on the greatest throne. But secondly, we can pass on from that and say, nevertheless, that's one of my favorite words, great connective word. That's true, but this is also true. Our Holy Spirit-inspired author here, the writer of Hebrews, said that, wanted us to hear that. We're coming to the great king on the highest throne. But because of a uniquely qualified high priest, our guide to God The Christian comes to a throne of sheer grace. What a difference in saying there's a high throne and you better keep away from it, it's forbidding, and saying it's a throne of grace, a grace that opens to you who belong to Christ, nevertheless belongs there. We can go into God's amazing presence. The way has been opened. Our Joshua, Jesus Christ, led us to that Sabbath rest of being right with God and being able to come into his presence. He's briefly described here with things we could go into. And again, I'm concerned just about exclusively with verse 16. But we could ask, you know, what does it mean in verse 15 that he's able to sympathize with us as one who has been Tempted as we are, and yet without sin, another whole sermon. But know that this priest is not only the divine Son of God, but he has been in human flesh. He went through everything in human flesh that you're going through. Do not ever tell me I'm going through worse suffering than Jesus Christ did. Oh, my goodness. I hope no one would ever think such an unholy thought. You are not going through more suffering than Jesus Christ did. He came from the highest place and went to the lowest depths of the Jerusalem garbage heap. That's where he died, by the way. Calvary, the place of the skull, was basically the the town dump. They threw dead bodies there that they didn't know what else to do with, dead animals. I'm sure the place smelled horribly. And he suffered there, not just physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. Emotional suffering, abandoned and alone, things that you cannot even imagine. But because he did all this and he remembers this, he remembers us and he knows what we're like. He knows what we go through. He knows what cares we have. He knows what pains we're dealing with. He knows how hard it is to be a teenager. Guess what? Jesus was a teenager. Amazing. Parents, think about that sometime. And have compassion on your teenager. Jesus got through those years. Your child, I hope, will also. But he says here that he is able to give mercy and grace. Do you know the difference in those two words? They're not just two words that say exactly the same thing. We may receive mercy and find grace. Mercy, you see, is a withholding word withholding from us that which we ought to experience, the judgment, the wrath of God. Mercy says the wrath is put aside because someone else took it for you, Jesus. Grace is the positive side, giving us that rest with God, that peace of belonging, of having righteousness counted on our side of the ledger when we don't deserve it. Mercy withholds, grace gives with an open hand. And this is what God does because someone has gone into his presence and dwells there on our behalf, Jesus, the new Joshua. In the same book, Hebrews 10, 19 to 21 says this, listen. Brothers, since we do have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his body, Since we have this great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. Some 20, almost 20 years, I guess more like 16 years ago, I preached all through Hebrews. It was a demanding series. Hebrews is a demanding book. It stands with Romans as one of the great doctrinal books of the New Testament. And when I was preaching through that, I was introduced to a book given to me by one of you, a member of this congregation, that I had not known before. The commentary of a Jewish Christian scholar, a man who was born in Judaism and converted to Christ, became quite a theologian. I had not even heard his name before, Adolf Saphir, S-A-P-H-I-R. Don't go looking for his book. You'll only find it in a rare books place because it's long out of print. But Saphir wrote his commentary on Hebrews with great wisdom. Let me quote several several sentences from him. He said here, he, he wrote, Jesus Christ possesses right now as the Son of Man all the glory that he had with his Father in eternity past. He descended first into the lower parts of creation, and there he hungered and thirsted. He sighed and wept. He prayed and agonized. But now he is in highest glory and he's there as our high priest, our representative, our federal head. Our priest, Saphir said, remembers his earthly experience and just as he passed through these brutal trials and then was set down upon his father's throne in matchless victory, so does he desire that we would share that throne with him one day. In fact, we are as good as seated there right now when we belong to Christ. Wow. Being divine, Jesus always was one with God. Becoming man, he became one with us, and and he bears his human form, we believe, in heaven today. The Scripture even seems to indicate that the marks of the nails are there still today. There's mercy and there's grace at the throne that Jesus shares with his Father. And he, with the Father, is ready to provide all that we need, whether it's guidance, whether it's healing, whether it's comfort, whatever the need is shaped in your life right now. I quote Sapphire once more when he said this, Having such an amazing high priest in heaven, can we lose our courage? Can we draw back in cowardice, impatience, or faintness? Can we give up our profession of or obedience to this Christ? I hope you say the answer is no. In no wise can we do that. So thirdly, I appeal to you, just as the author of Hebrews does here, my appeal is that you would approach your king, Christian, in bold confidence. Bold confidence. Now, that is not... Impudent or improper confidence, it's proper confidence that belongs to you because Jesus has given it to you. Let me illustrate what bold confidence is not exactly. You can read in the Old Testament when the sacrificial uh, rituals were being established for the high priest to wear his special clothing and take you know, several baths and make sure his body was very clean and wear this wonderful outfit that he wore to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to go there and appeal to God to forgive the sins of the people and his own sins as well. You can say, wow, that's bold confidence, but you know what? There's always a little thing that has indicated to me that the confidence wasn't completely bold. Do you know what it is? The high priest had a little rope or cord tied to his ankle. What was that all about? Well, the cord went out of the Holy of Holies and back to the area adjacent. What was that for? Well, listen, if he didn't show up in a few hours, if he didn't come out by the next day, people would know and think why the priest has been struck dead in the holy presence of God. And you can be sure The most experienced priests there that served in the temple were not ready to say, I'll go in and get him. Nobody was going in. They would just pull the cord and drag his lifeless body. I don't know that that ever happened, but preparation for it was made. Their confidence wasn't quite so bold. Maybe their priest would be struck dead. Our priest was struck dead, and yet he passed through the heavens. And made the way open, says the author of Hebrews, for us to go in and to belong there and to be confident that we were invited there. Years ago, one time I attended a Baltimore Orioles game down in Camden Yards in Baltimore. I was the guest of a man whose company owned a block of seats. And of course, different members of the company would use those seats and invite friends or something to go. As you know, that works. We were about 10 rows up from home plate. About home plate was probably just past the midway point of the sanctuary from me, certainly not all the way to the doors. Let me tell you, I've never sat in a better seat to see a professional. I told my wife, you could watch the stitches on the ball turn as, a, as the curveball. If you don't appreciate pitching, you had to see it that close to see the pitches jump and dip and curve. It was pointed out to me over there, that's Mrs. Cal Ripken right there a couple rows over. Oh, I was in the privileged area. But I was interested to watch what, what happened there because you know, of course, the seats that went closer to where I was were even better. You know, I watch the World Series and I look at the people in the first row right behind the catcher. I think, boy, what did you have to pay for those seats? You know, I always think about that. Uh, And I watched, there were empty seats, so you know how it goes if you've been to baseball games. Young boys or or teens, probably who had bleacher seats somewhere way up, would come down and they'd walk down sort of confidently down the steps and seat themselves in some of those seats in the first or second or fourth inning. Because they had watched those seats and said, nobody's there, we can sit there. Well, there are people appointed just to that purpose, they're called ushers and ushers would watch those boys and I would watch how the usher very politely would go and say, could I see your tickets, please? And of course, they didn't have tickets for those seats and they were very politely asked to please vacate and go elsewhere. And I would think to myself, oh, well, I don't really belong here among these expensive seats. Maybe he's going to kick me out too. But then I thought, no, he's not going to kick me out because my friend has our tickets. I'm entitled to be here. My privilege has been bought for me by someone else. And I sat easy, and I didn't get thrown out. That's really what we are in relation to the high throne of Christ. We belong where we are if we have the ticket bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been brought into that presence, and we belong in that presence. Charles Spurgeon, a century ago, spoke about this. He said, We do not come to the back door of God's kitchen like street urchins begging for leftover scraps. No, he said, we are invited into the front door of the eternal dwelling where we walk in past the cherubim and the seraphim into the king's glittering audience chamber and we are conducted there by Christ the Son whose seat is occupied at God's right hand. That's just an echo of Ephesians 3.12, it says, By Christ Jesus the Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Not impudence, not rudeness, not stealing a seat that isn't ours. Confidence bought for us by the blood of our Savior. God bids us come near. He bids us who were his enemies, once standing far off, come near, come speak to me forthrightly, hold nothing back, confess your unworthiness, come as you are, ask for what you need. I want to hear from you. The Lord Jesus Christ went through all kinds of sorrows and trials on this earth to be qualified. He already was qualified as Son of God, but in a sense he was qualified again by being Son of Man on the earth. And now he's our man at the throne who conducts us there and asks us to belong and to speak to the Father. There's a story told. It's one of those kind of things that you say, this may be a legend, but it still makes a point. A story is told of a soldier long ago in the army of Alexander the Great. You remember Alexander, very young age, in his 20s, He swept through the Mediterranean basin and into the Middle East, conquering one country after another after another until a huge swath of the map of the ancient world was literally under the rule of Alexander, this young man, for a period of time. Well, there was a soldier serving under Alexander who committed an act of great bravery and was observed in doing that, and Alexander himself saw it and wanted to commend and reward the young man, he, he uh, communicated to him, name your reward, soldier. What you've done is very heroic. Name your reward and you will have it. Well, the man was just a common soldier, but he named an amount of money that was equal to an officer's pay for a whole year. I'm sure he thought he was stretching as far as he could stretch. And in fact, the, the paymaster, the man who handled the army purse, came to Alexander and said, "'Sir, you surely will not give this man "'this absurd request that he's made.' "'But Commander-in-Chief Alexander said, "'No, sir, this man knows from whom he asks this, "'and because his request is made to an emperor "'over many nations such as I am, "'I grant him not this request but three times as much.' He should have a king-size reward, is what Alexander was saying. You have sung this morning John Newton's hymn already that says, you are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. That doesn't mean you're going to get every foolish thing your imagination can dream up but it means you should act boldly and with confidence in the presence of your God because he, if he does not give you what you ask, will give you something much wiser and much better. It's never a natural action, strictly speaking, for a sinful human being to approach the living God in prayer. It's not natural. We don't belong there naturally. God's law would cause our mouths to be shut. We'd put a hand over our mouths and say, I dare not speak. But saving grace in Christ, our high priest, has opened our mouths to pray. And therefore, you can come to God today through Christ, not with presumption, not with rudeness, not in foolish imagination, but in Christ-based confidence as his child. Our Father, I ask that you keep teaching us what prayer is. We have ideas about it that are too small. We who ought to know better do not always remember who we're coming to or why we're coming or in whose name we come. So again, we pray, Lord, teach us to pray. Amen.